So last week, immediately after preaching, in fact, as I was walking down those stairs, this thought came into my mind. Uh, why would a loving God send people to hell? And it's a question that I'm often asked. So it's not something that just, you know, popped in, but I believe it would have popped into my mind for today because there, there might be somebody who has this question in their hearts. Why would a loving God send people to hell? A little spoiler alert. If you don't want to listen to anything else I've got to say today. The question would be better asked, how could a holy God allow me into his heaven? So why would a loving God send people to hell? I mean, Christians talk a lot about the love of God. And then we say, well, if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're going to go to hell, a place of eternal torment. What kind of God is this that you are introducing to me? He seems like an absolute monster. How many times have I heard things like, why can't you just stick to the message of Jesus? This Jesus who accepted everybody. He accepted the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the drunkards. This Jesus who said, don't judge lest you be judged. What's the deal now with hell? It was only recently in the last two years that I had this exact same discussion with the leader of a major school. The Bible he read, he claims, speaks of a loving and accepting Jesus. And that's supposedly true Christianity. Don't want to pop your bubble, but every sinner Jesus ever encountered, he always pointed that person away from their sin. He never embraced their sin. He never validated their sin in a supposedly non-judgmental way. So we need to be very clear before we even start talking about hell. We need to be clear about the Jesus that we serve. We need to ensure that the Jesus we serve is actually the Jesus of the Bible. See, the Apostle Paul warns very clearly, if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, you, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Now, there's an element of condemnation there. He's angry with this Corinthian church. In Galatians 1 verse 8, he says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached, let him be eternally condemned. That word condemned is the word anathema, which means to be cut off, to be cursed, to be sent away from God. Therefore, if we're going to talk today about hell, we need to go to the Scriptures. The doctrine of the eternal punishment of those who will one day stand before God without Christ has been a part of the understanding of almost all believing Christians throughout church history. And our understanding for hell is simply the teaching of the Bible and the teaching of Jesus. That's what I want to have a look at a little bit this morning. 
See, it's Jesus who affirms the dreadful truth that those who are going to stand alone before God, and let me tell you, we will all stand alone. We're not going to stand with our parents or with our pastor or with uh, the television set or anything else. We're going to stand alone and face God one day. We will all stand and face condemnation if we stand without Christ. And we will be sent to a state of eternal punishment called hell. Jesus, for example, declaring to the religious hypocrites said in Matthew 23, 33, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Those who reject, he rejected as subjects of the kingdom, he said in Matthew 8, 12, those people will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Stressing the seriousness of sin, Jesus urges in Mark 9.43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There's radical behavior here, for it's better for you to enter life maimed with two, than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. In Mark 9.48, Jesus speaks about hell as being a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. On the day of judgment, Jesus said that those who failed to respond to him, Matthew 25.46, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, often you find people who ridicule hell as being some primitive remnant of a medieval age. Us living now in 2024, we're in the enlightened time. You know, we don't need hell. The church in the early days needed hell to keep people in fear. Otherwise, they would misbehave. But that's not true. This doctrine of eternal punishment of sinners is rooted 100% in the teachings of Jesus himself. In fact, Jesus, it's Jesus more than anyone else who reveals the love of God. It's that same Jesus who spoke more about hell than heaven even and more than any other person in the Bible. As followers of Christ, we cannot be faithful to Jesus without knowing and speaking of the stark reality. Even the apostles weigh in on Jesus' words about hell. For example, Paul in Romans chapter 2 verse 8 says, But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be distress and trouble for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. He declares that those who do not obey the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Jude, in a similar way, declares... In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. 
They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the book of Revelation, we read these hells spoken of in these harrowing tones. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Hell's not a place where your friends are all having a party. Some people try to write off hell as just being figurative language. And while this might be true sometimes in the scripture, these images are specifically chosen to convey a certain reality. And it's a, an horrific reality. It's a reality of wrath, of alienation, of separation from God. It's a reality that Jesus warns us about over and over again in the strongest possible terms. And it's a reality that Jesus himself gave his own life to save us from. A place where the worms that eat them do not die and fire is not quenched. A place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth called the second death and so on. All places, images depicting physical pain and suffering, displaying the sense of God's righteous anger and his wrath poured out upon all who oppose or reject his goodness. So Jesus himself is the author of this doctrine of hell. Why are people then so repulsed by this clear teaching of Jesus? Let me tell you some reasons perhaps why we don't like the doctrine of hell. Well, obviously we don't like judgment. We are, affect, we are offended rather simply by the basic idea that there must be some kind of judgment. I mean, why should people stand before God one day as their judge? Why should there be a separation of the righteous and the wicked? Can't God just accept everybody? Isn't that what love requires after all? I mean, isn't God a God of love? How can this be love? How can hell be love? Now the problem with that logic is that it's a basic misunderstanding of who God is. The Bible declares that God is not only loving, he's also good. And he's perfectly holy and perfectly good. And a God who is good must not only love, he must also hate evil. He must hate. He must hate that which is contrary to his goodness. Might be difficult for us to understand that a God, God is a God who hates. 
Maybe we can't imagine that. But if he's a God who loves, he must also hate that which is contrary to his goodness and his perfection. He can't be a God of love if he is not also a God of hate. He's got to perfectly do both things at the same time. Otherwise, it makes a mockery of the fact that God is love. See, God created this world to display his own glory and goodness. So isn't it right that he hates everything that destroys that perfection? It must be like that. Should God not hate the sexual abuse of children? Should God not hate the fact that terrorist bombs kill hundreds of innocent people? Should God not hate the fact that sometimes men who are physically stronger than women will beat them to a pulp simply to satisfy their own egos? Should God not hate that? Should God not hate the father who in his lusts choose to break up a family and destroy the lives of little children just to place his bits somewhere else? My God who is a God of love is also a God of hate. We don't like that. Among the things we read in the Bible... I was going to say, if God doesn't hate, he could hardly be called good. I think I've said that. Among the things that we read that God hates specifically, we read are things like idolatry, and his greed, not idolatry. Child sacrifice, sexual perversion, those who do evil, we specifically read God hates those things. Yes, some others in Proverbs chapter 6. Six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. That's just a Hebraic way of saying, this is how much he hates them. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among his brothers. Not just things included in that passage that God hates, it includes people as well. And the reason is simple. Sin cannot be separated from the sinner except by the forgiveness offered in Christ Jesus alone. God hates lying, yes, but lying involves a person, a liar, who chooses to lie. God cannot judge the lie without judging the liar. Because he's good, he's got to hate. Ah, but you say, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. What Bible verse did you get that from? Doesn't exist in the scripture. I think we're just trying to be God's public relations department. We're trying to soften sin. We're trying to make it feel and sound not so bad. Oh, so God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Do you know who said that? Mahatma Gandhi. 
in his autobiography of 1929. A Hindu said that. A Christian cannot say God hates the sin but loves the sinner. You can maybe get away with God hates the sin and loves the sinner. That would be true because he does. But he hates the sin. We don't like to think of God hating. For God so loved the world. Yes. But he also hates the sin. And yes. He even hates in his perfect love the sinner. Psalm 5, 5 says, The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. Yes? Does the Bible say that? It says God hates all who do wrong. Psalm 11, 5, The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. Do you want to let that sink in a little bit? The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those people who love violence, his soul hates. This is not just in the context as in he loves them less, like a hyperbole that Jesus uses when he says we must hate father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and our own lives if we want to be his, his disciple. It's not that kind of hate. This is hate. This is proper hate. The judgment of God is necessary for the existence of real moral order in the universe. Without God's hatred of evil and evildoers, there can be no real moral order. We might object to the idea of some final judgment but far from degrading us, I think God's judgment actually gives dignity to our lives. See, he's giving us choices. He treats us, in a sense, as responsible moral agents. He confers upon us choices. If we are not held accountable for our actions, why not just do whatever we want to do? But because we will be judged by God. Our choices now have eternal consequences. They matter. Friends, God's judgment is necessary if divine goodness is to be victorious over evil. Because God will judge the world, His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Justice will prevail and good will be seen to be good finally and fully by all. We need God's judgment. A world without the judgment of God is a world that ultimately lacks any ultimate meaning. I mean, what's the point? I think people will, if you pin them down, finally recognize that there is perhaps some difference between Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa. You know, maybe Adolf Hitler needs a bit more judgment than Mother Teresa. And, and we can kind of say, yeah, well, maybe there should be a judgment. But it should only be reserved for those really bad people, the terrorists and the murderers and those who abuse children and all the rest of it. They belong in hell. So maybe the issue of judgment, if we talk long enough, will become acceptable. That's why we need a hell. The second reason why people don't like the idea of hell is 
because many would object to the need of a savior. I mean, what does Jesus even have to do with it? Why, why do I need a judge? Why do I need a savior? Well, let's talk about somebody really nice. Shall we call her Granny Mabel? Granny Mabel is kind. She's a nice person. She never says a bad thing to anybody. She never gossips. She doesn't try and break people down. She's kind to her community. She even bakes cookies to raise funds for the SPCA. Granny Mabel is really nice. But she's just not into the God thing. So how can she deserve to go to hell? Now, the fact that God has, over the years, revealed himself in many ways, in many different times, to Granny Mabel. Every sunset, every sunrise, every time there's been a beautiful flower that's popped up in her garden, every time even perhaps that she did hear the message of the gospel at Christmas or Easter, each time Granny Mabel heard that whisper and turned away, each time she said no to God, I will not allow you to be God in my life. I want to rule my own life. Granny Mabel just wants God to leave her alone and being left alone by God, friends, is what the Bible calls hell. You could say Granny Mabel has wished that God didn't exist as far as her life goes. She shut him out. And this is the tragedy of the human condition. We want to be our own God. We want to save ourselves. We want to be in charge of our own destiny. And the wonder of it is that God allows us to do that. God allows us to make these choices. And if you don't believe me, watch what happens at the next general election. How many people will sit down and study the policies of the political parties represented? How many people will continue to vote for people who murder pre-born babies? 1st of Feb 2nd of February 1997, termination of pregnancy enacted in Parliament by a so-called majority government of Christians. Bullshit nonsense <laughs> oh I get so angry naughty minds you've got you lot yeah. see what happens God allows us to make our own choices 80 people murdered more than 80 people violently murdered in South Africa every day let me tell you it's safer to live in Gaza right now than it is to live in South Africa but we on some sort of moral vengeance against Israel when we need to deflect things away from what's happening in our country. How many women are being raped every 15 seconds in South Africa? Come on, come on, come on. It's just, it's just, it's just beyond. God, why do you leave us alone? Why do you let us make our own choices? 
People will still vote to murder babies, protect pornography, keep the rapists if they're ever caught nice and warm and cozy until they come out and do it all again. They'll continue to place people in power who have no regard for human life. God allows us that kind of freedom. You can say that hell is simply the final and ultimate result of that process. In a sense, hell is the ultimate testament to human freedom. So before you object to the need of a savior, recognize how much leeway God actually gives you. It's not necessarily that people choose to go to hell. They simply choose the road that leads them there, the wide road that leads to destruction. Little by little their hearts become hardened to the love of God and their ears become deafened to the voice of God and they refuse, like Granny Mabel, to humble themselves before the grace of God. In the end, they refuse to receive the rescue that is found in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not a bad person. I don't need a savior. I'm not Adolf Hitler. So we reject the need of a savior. And in doing so, we reject the notion of hell. The next stage of this logic is that punishment of hell seems grossly excessive. The punishment of hell just seems like it's too much. Is it really necessary for us to suffer hell if we don't accept Jesus? Is everlasting condemnation really something uh, that the Bible says? And why would it do that? To be thrown into outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, worm doesn't die and fire is not question, uh, quenched? Shouldn't that be considered cruel, unusual and excessive? Well, I want to ask another question. Isn't it a bit presumptuous on our part to prescribe to God how he ought to execute his justice in his universe? He is of infinite and immeasurable holiness and goodness. How do we even come close to that? If I sinned only once in my life, I would have no right to enter his holiness, his holy heaven. No right. This is his universe. It's his holiness and it's his rules. And if you miss, miss his rule once, it's too much. Even once, I'm disqualified. Simple. So any punishment, including eternity in hell, is fully justified when we look at this perfectly holy God. And besides, let me tell you another little secret. Those in hell actually have no desire ever to repent. They just keep on sinning according to the scriptures. Revelation 16 says, Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. That is what hell looks like. In hell, the sinner's hardened heart becomes harder and harder. And hell goes on forever because sinners never stop sinning. The rebellion against God's righteous rule simply never ceases. Jesus was grieved as he thought of the fate of those in the coming judgment. We see him weeping over Jerusalem which seemed dead sent against him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you. Ezekiel chapter 33, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Can I read that again? 
God says he takes no pleasure in the death of, of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn! Turn <coughs> from your evil ways. Why will you die, Israel? 1 Timothy, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 2. Hell is hot. <coughs> Speaking about hell is hot. <coughs> 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, This is good and pleases our God, our Savior. Who wants? All men. He doesn't want anybody to die. He wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart for people. The Apostle Paul grieves over the thought of the possible fate of his own countrymen rejecting the gospel. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. So it's that anguish of heart that ought to move us as it moved Paul to pray and work so that those without Christ may know of him, turn to him and find rescue from the awful capacity of sin in their lives and even worse, the horrible, indescribable fate which awaits those who have no need of God. People don't like hell because they reject the idea of judgment. They object to the need of the Savior. They feel that punishment is excess excessive. And I've tried to address each of these issues, but as I wind down, I share some reasons why there should be a hell. Perhaps easier to answer why there should be a hell is to suggest what hell tells us about God. Firstly, it demonstrates God's holiness. It demonstrates God's holiness. What, however we conceive of the love of God, we must recognize it's always a holy love. And we as human beings cannot understand the utter purity of God's holiness and his absolute abhorrence of evil. Maybe if we could get a glimpse of what God thinks of evil, we can begin to, uh, to conceive the appropriateness of hell as God's response to that evil. I suspect that for most of us, our thoughts are too shallow about God too tame, perhaps too domesticated. We've made God in our own image rather than allowing his word to, sh to shape him uh, in our thinking. Consequently, we don't understand the sinfulness of sin. Instead of thinking sin is not so bad, how extreme of God to punish it, we should be thinking, what must sin be like if it results in sinners justly going to hell. See, hell shows us how holy God is. Such is his revulsion of our sin. The Bible tells us to fear the Lord is the beginning. Uh, to hate evil, I beg your pardon, is the, to hate evil is the beginning of wisdom. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. To fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To Hate evil. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. So hell demonstrates his holiness. Hell also vindicates God's justice. 
The existence of hell testifies forever that in God's universe righteousness rules. Let there be no mistake, evil will get its due. When God says the wages of sin is death, he means it. When God punishes sin, he will be seen to be just in all his ways. God will be glorified even in the display of his wrath. 2 Thessalonians 1 says God is just. For those of you going through a hard time now, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people, to be marveled at among all those who have believed, this includes you because you believed our testimony. To you, friends, hell vindicates God's justice. It also magnifies God's grace. Seems to be a paradox, but it's not. God's grace is made so much bigger by the existence of hell. If we are standing in the queue at the grocery store and I pay your bill at the till, you'd be grateful, especially if you knew how little money you had to get you to the end of the month. But your degree of gratitude would rise dramatically if you found out I didn't just bill pay for your basket of groceries. I also paid your car loan, I paid your house off, and I paid all the debts that you'd ever made. Your clothing accounts, everything else, I'd paid them all off. In a sense, this is what hell says to us. See, it's the measure of God's grace. This is the length that he went to in order to save us. Jesus brought me back from the slave yard of sin. He took my place. When he hung on the cross that day and he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing something of the God-forsakenness of hell itself for sinners. And this is what he endured on our behalf. The sinless man who himself was God, who lived in a perfect relationship with, of faith and love with his Father in heaven. That separation from his Father on the cross, that loss of relationship, bearing the wrath that our sin deserves, was far greater than any suffering we could ever imagine. But such is the love of God for us. The love of God is as deep as the depths of hell itself. If you would say the God I believe in would never send anyone to hell, then you will never know the true depth of the love of God who reveals himself in the Bible. The God of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The God who in love bore hell itself for us. This is not sentimental love. This is a love described by the hymn writer as being so amazing, so divine. It demands my soul, my life, my all. There should be a hell because it demonstrates God's holiness, it vindicates God's justice, and it magnifies God's grace. So let me conclude by asking again, why could a loving God send people to hell. As I mentioned in the beginning, this might be a question we'll all wrestle with to some extent. 
But the question we should rather ask ourselves, how could a holy God allow me into his heaven? And if your answer is because I went to visit some sick lady or because I gave my tithe to the church or because I went to church or be, if your answer is anything other than because Jesus died in my place, you are going to hell. I can't make it any clearer. How can God allow me into his heaven? He can't. I'm wicked to the core. Even to this day, my thought life, my actions, my deeds, my words. If I'd, if I'd never sinned till today, I guarantee you I would have sinned today. I cannot get into his holy heaven ever. But somebody's gone before. Somebody died in my place. Somebody took my sin upon himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Is that the God you believe in today? Have you softened the God you believe in, your heart? Have you softened him towards some of the stuff going on in our society just to become all-inclusive and accepting and, oh, we don't want to appear judgmental? Beware. You're not preaching and teaching and believing the God of the Bible. The God who loves you is also the God who hates Sin and the evildoer. Let us pray. So it might seem that I'm preaching to the choir here this morning, and that, that could be true. But the chance that there's somebody watching me online, and the chance that there's somebody here this morning who's perhaps heard for the first time the truth of heaven and hell. Maybe I've just confused you more. And I'm sorry for that. I wish I had more time to try and explain in this format too. But know this one thing, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us already. He took your place. He took my place. And the wonder of the gospel is that if I would believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and I would believe in my heart of hearts that he's alive today, that he didn't just die for me, but that he rose again. If I will confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. In other words, I make Jesus boss of my life. The Bible says I will be saved. You want to know how you can escape the wrath of God? Turn to him this morning. In your heart of hearts, just say, Lord God, I don't want to go to hell. I know that your love for me was so great that you gave Jesus to take my place.
I believe that he did take my place. And I thank you for that. Forgive me of all my sin. Even my sin of thinking my good deeds were any good. Forgive me. Jesus, come into my life today, I pray. Be my Lord and my Savior from this moment on. And I thank you. Lord, I pray for those this morning who are rejoicing, just thinking again about your kindness in Christ, thanking you again for their salvation, maybe some for many, many years. And Lord, for those who, even as I've prayed this prayer this morning, there'll be those that have prayed that prayer for the very first time, that they would know in their heart of hearts that he who has the Son who has life, and I thank you for that life. Thank you for the gift of righteousness that you give to each one who prayed that prayer. Thank you that they don't need to struggle and strive any longer to please you or worry about displeasing you in an eternal sense. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ that clothes them right now. Thank you for the gift of your spirit in each life. How we bless you and thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.